Well, you can turn your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 8, and we will be concentrating this morning on the second half of the chapter, verses 7 through 13, actually 6 through 13, that should say, as we look at uh, this justice, really, that is coming from the Creator. That's the title of the message this morning, Justice from the Creator. And sometimes the question could be asked, you know, why is God doing this sort of thing in the earth? You know, sort of, who does he think he is to be able to be the one to do this? And it, it, uh, it's hard to even say that with a straight face, but some people actually believe it uh, and uh, question whether or not a loving God could do this sort of a thing. Well, he is in fact, the Creator, according to the Word, this is His, his planet, His uh, creation, and in fact, He could not be uh, God if He just allowed the injustices of the world to continue forever. There has to come a time when, when injustice and unbelief and sin is ultimately dealt with for. God to be God. And that is what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. We're seeing how this uh, process is going to play itself out. Ultimately, God wants everyone to believe in him. And like we saw last week in our uh, resurrection message, we saw Thomas going to the Lord and saying that he would not believe until he actually sees the risen Lord, and he does, of course. And then the Lord says to him, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And blessed are those who believe without having to go through the tribulation. But ultimately, a large group of people, and, and also ultimately his people, his nation, is not going to believe until these events take place on the earth, a very sad, sad situation. And today we see a, a large part of that judgment being poured out on the earth, a significant portion of the judgments, or at least a part of the judgments being poured out upon the earth. And we know that these, these events are not going to take place until after the rapture of the church, which ends the church age and will essentially usher in the time period that allows the tribulation events to take place. We know from uh, Paul's writings that, that the Antichrist will not appear until the restrainer is taken out of the way, Second Thessalonians, and we believe the restrainer to be the, the influence of the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers in the church, we will be taken out of the way at the rapture of the church, and then subsequently the events of the tribulation will begin, beginning with the revealing of the Antichrist. And then, as we have seen, the seal judgments take place, and now we are getting into the trumpet judgments. Uh, the tribulation, of course, ends with the second coming of Christ, and then he ushers in his 1,000-year uh, kingdom period upon 
the earth. This is where we find ourselves in, in our outline of the book of Revelation. Rev, based on Revelation 1.19, John was to write the things which he has seen, the things which will take place after these things, chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the various churches. And then he was to write about the things which will take place after these things. We saw chapters 4 and 5, this great scene in heaven where the, the scroll is introduced, the lamb who breaks the seals on the scroll, Jesus Christ, was introduced again. And then finally, these events begin to take place in chapter 6 with the seal judgments and now moving into chapter 8 with the trumpet judgments. These are all future judgments. None of these judgments are taking place today. None of them will take place until after the tribulation period begins, which begins with the introduction of the Antichrist and his pseudo-peace. We can you can almost feel this in the world today. The world is so longing for a person who will bring peace to the earth. And we know the only person who can truly bring peace is the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus Christ. That's why the world is going to fall head over heels for the Antichrist, this one who is promising peace, but it will just simply be a pseudo-peace. And the pseudo-peace won't last for long However long the period of time is between the first seal and the second seal is how long his peace will last because war is next and then famine and death and martyrs we've seen. And then we begin to see signs in the heavens. We'll see more of those today. And then the seventh seal is broken and that is, as we have seen and will see again today, unleashes the seven trumpet judgments. Now, last time we sort of introduced this. That's what verses one through five are really just an introduction to the trumpets. That's what we looked at last time. We spent some time going over the pattern, how these judgments uh, come about in the world. Is the book of Revelation are these judgments talking about the same thing? Do the, do the seal judgments talk about the seven-year seven tribulation period in its entirety? And then the trumpets talk about it again. And then the bowl judgments are just simply a, a rehashing of the entire tribulation period. That's a theory known as recapitulation. Uh, we, however, would... Uh, see these judgments as being telescoping, and, and we'll see that we'll talk about that more uh, here later on, but that they follow one from another, that this is a sequence of events, see, essentially seal judgments, then trumpet judgments, then bowl judgments that lay out the entirety of the seven-year tribulation period. We also talked about a silence, and it's kind of unfortunate that uh, these uh, messages fell out where they did because we, I came across an article this week by uh, Max Lucado speaking of the, the half hour of silence there in the beginning and how Christendom, unfortunately, is very interested in silence and, and this kinds of thing. And, you know, I, I have a big, long quote from Max Lucado about the silence of Saturday. And if you Google it, you can read it for yourself. 
Uh, I won't waste your time to read the whole thing. I have it here, but yeah, that's, we don't need to read it all. You can do that on your own. At any rate, uh, and he, this isn't unique to Max, I don't think, but if you Google it, the silence of Saturday, he will be the first one that comes up, and then there's a whole litany of other silence of Saturdays. The, what in the world is the silence of Saturday, you may be saying? Well, uh, the theory goes that Jesus was crucified on Friday and he rose again on Sunday and Saturday just gets lost. And, and that's where we need to be is in the silence of Saturday. So, yeah, Christianity is very much, uh, unfortunately, wanting to find the silence. And there could be some things in, in the quote that are, that are true. And, the, and that's, that's the problem, that, that there's a little bit of truth mixed in with a whole lot of error. And that's what we want to, want to avoid, because all of this talk of silence and finding God in the silence and all of that is just a veiled portrayal of uh, meditation and, and all of these kinds of things that are completely anti-biblical. And we saw, in fact, we looked at a few examples of silence being a time for us to get our act together, get right with God because judgment is about to come. And that's exactly, you're not going to hear that in the silence of Saturday uh, sort of talk. But that's what the Bible portrays many times. When there is silence, judgment is about to happen. It is a time for you to be able to prepare. And, that, and we will see that again today. Injustice from the Creator. We have the justice prepared, the justice delivered, and then a, a justice warning or a warning of more justice that is about to come. But notice Revelation 8 and verse 6, it says, and, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. These seven angels prepare themselves. They get themselves uh, perhaps in proper order uh, to sound the trumpets. Maybe they prepare, they are kind of tuning their instruments to make sure they, they get, the, get the tune right that God wants for them to sound, to initiate these judgments. And this is, we can draw out a lot, of, a lot of conclusions from this. I don't want to give you the personal application for this. I believe that is holy, the, the Holy Spirit's job to do that in your life, to show you how you ought to be ordered and prepared. But we can certainly take away from this that God does desire orderliness and preparation and this, this sort of thing that we see these, even these angels doing, angels who are continually in the presence of God in heaven still need to prepare themselves to carry out his wishes. God, in fact, is very orderly. He has a plan for the world. We studied about that in the book of Ephesians. Right in the, the introduction to that incredible book, the verses 3 through 14 describe God's preparedness for salvation, in fact, for people being made right with him, that he has had this plan for people to trust in his 
perfect sacrifice for sin and the the benefits that come along with that when we are in Christ, when we trust in Him and in His plan. God desires order in worship. He doesn't want it to be a, a chaotic sort of thing where we just kind of go with the flow or however the Spirit leads us. That's the sort of thing that we're going to do that, that often ends in chaos. The Corinthians are a wonderful example of that. You can see all kinds of examples of that on uh, YouTube if you so desire. Have some good Sunday night entertainment. You can look that sort of thing up. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that God desires order in worship. 1 Corinthians fourteen forty. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, Paul tells the Corinthians concerning at this kind of moving through this transitional time in the early church where they still had sign gifts, uh, speaking in tongues, prophecy, this sort of thing. Uh, the, 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 speak, the speaking of tongues needed to be done in an orderly manner, in a specific way. People bringing words from the Lord because they didn't have the completed Bible yet. And so God allowed people to speak in actual languages to teach them, teach the people in the congregation, something that was clearly miraculous. And there also needed to be an interpreter, Paul said, and it needed to be done one at a time. And these, these kinds of rules and, and regulations that went along with it. There is also an order for the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't it interesting that God is concerned with instructing the Corinthians in particular in these kinds of uh, orderliness and preparedness? Probably the most, uh, what, what we would refer to as carnal uh, Christian group in that we see having letters written to them, God desires to instruct them in orderliness and preparedness and the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. God is orderly, even in something like the resurrection. First, Christ will be resurrected. Then we who are alive and remain at his coming will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, along with those who have died in him leading up to that point in time. There is an order to the resurrection, and then the kingdom comes, and then death is finally abolished forever. God is, is very orderly. God also desires for his people to be prepared, just like these angels are preparing themselves to 
sound. Not only does he want order in our lives, in our, in our worship and this kind of things, he wants people to be prepared to serve him. Abraham is a, is a wonderful example of a person who was prepared by God to serve him. You can read about that in the book of Genesis, of course. Chapters 12 through 22, Joseph is another one. He was very much prepared for the work that God had for him to do. And, and oftentimes, uh, Joseph's life was not a bed of roses. Everything wasn't great for him all the way through. But each step of the way, he is becoming more and more refined and prepared to serve God where he had him to serve under a pagan king, incidentally, uh, serving God under the authority of a pagan king. That was the story of Joseph's life. Moses, another one, very kind of a similar sort of story for Moses. He was prepared very much to serve the Lord, and it, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't a short period of time. In fact, his preparation was, well, you could say it was about 80 years, but he lived for 40 years in Egypt. And then uh, he, when he sees the plight of the Israelite people, he essentially becomes an outcast from them for about another 40 years before he is called by the Lord to lead the people of Israel out of captivity. So sometimes our preparation might be kind of short. Sometimes it might be very long, like Moses. He's used at 80 years old, he is, when he comes back to, to lead the people out of captivity. The apostles, the entire story of the life of Christ is the apostles being prepared for the work that God would have them to do after Christ is resurrected and, and taken back to ascends back to to heaven. The apostles lived three and a half years with the Lord, being prepared for the time of the book of Acts where they will carry out his uh, great commission, essentially, taking the gospel to the world. The Apostle Paul, of course, he didn't live with Christ during his, his time on the earth. However, he's very much an apostle and he was very much prepared to serve the Lord. Galatians 1.13, Paul had to kind of brag about himself, if you will, to the Galatians to uh, get them to understand who he was and the authority that his word had. He says in Galatians 1.13, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism. Notice that the church doesn't start with Paul. <laughs> he tried to destroy the church, he says there in verse 13. Clearly, it didn't start with him. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood 
nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But when I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas or Peter and stayed with him 15 days. Paul was very much prepared by the Lord to carry out the ministry that that he had for him to do. And we can uh, see the same thing for ourselves. We may find ourselves today in a, in a time of life where it doesn't seem like we're doing much for the Lord. And uh, well, maybe that is a time of preparation for you, a time to uh, study his word, to get right with him, to prepare yourself in order to serve the Lord. Uh, God desires this from us. He desires for his servants to be prepared. He desires for their lives to be orderly and be ordered according to his word. Sometimes uh, uh, this order and preparation, well, not sometimes, every time, this order and preparation for service for him involves godly living in an ungodly world. That is true for each and every one of the, each and every one of us. And if, if we do this and the power of his Holy Spirit, not under some sort of legalistic pressure, but under the, the working and influence of the Holy Spirit, we will be uh, conformed to his image and find ourselves being prepared to serve him. In some cases, this preparation needs to be more formal, like uh, formal schooling, seminary, this kind of thing. In every single case, I can assure you, it involves coming to church, being with believers, uh, being instructed in the word, being sharpened by being around uh, other other believers and this this kind of so these angels, they, they are preparing themselves. They're getting in order. They're getting ready to sound the trumpets, which is what we see next, the justice delivered. Notice verses 7 through 12, uh, where it says, The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. We'll just stop with the reading there and just read them as we go along. But here is that telescoping view of the judgments that are take place during the tribulation. So here's your tribulation begins with the first seal ends with the seventh bowl and the trumpets, the telescope does a good job of showing how the, the judgments really expand in their, their ferocity. They expand in their, in their nature of, of their intensity of the judgments, you know, the seal judgments are pretty bad. The trumpet judgments are even worse. And the bowl judgments are even worse on top of that. That's the, the idea of this, the telescoping view that these are sequentially describing the entirety of the seven-year tribulation period. 
And so where do these judgments fall out? Within the seven-year tribulation period, while there's some differences of opinion on that note, however, I believe that the, 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 the seven seals and the seven trumpets make up the first half of the tribulation. There are some uh, commonalities among dispensationalists in, in their view of the judgments or even uh, maybe not necessarily dispensationalists, but any of those who see these judgments as describing the tribulation period, seals, trumpets, and bowls in a sequential manner, all agree that the, that the tribulation begins with the first seal it ends with the coming of Christ. And in the middle of the tribulation is this abomination of desolation when, that, is, that Jesus talks about, the book of Daniel talks about, uh, Paul talks about it in his writings to the Thessalonians. That is the midpoint of the tribulation. The three and a half year point is when the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem. That is the middle of the tribulation in everyone's eyes who, who recognizes a seven-year tribulation period. Now, many will see the seal judgments as describing the entire first half, and then these trumpets and bowls will be in the second half. Uh, here again, this is a depiction of the position that I personally hold the seals and trumpets are in the first half. The bowl judgments describe the second half, and we'll get to more reasons why when we make it to chapters 10 through 13, that, that uh, one of those breaks in the action. That's going to be our second intermission, if you will, where we'll see some events of the tribulation being given more detail, and we'll talk more about that. But the main events... First seal begins the tribulation, the Antichrist being revealed. Middle of the tribulation is the Antichrist setting himself up to be worshipped. End of the tribulation is Jesus Christ coming again. But this first trumpet judgment described there in verse 7 entails hail and fire being mixed with blood being thrown to the earth a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was destroyed. This is an unprecedented uh, ecological disaster that is, that is being described here. And it, it, it brings up the question, are we worshiping the creature, the earth, and the things of the earth, or are we worshiping the creator. It would be, behoove us to worship the creator and not this creation that is going to be burned up. And uh, there are some very interesting views when it comes to all of these trumpet judgments, but in particular, these first four, uh, some, the non-literalist interpretation of these judgments is, is hard to, hard to uh, understand. Actually, when we read these words on the page, well, a third of the trees are going to be burned up. The green grass is going to be burned up. This is describing something that is that 
we can see happening that's pretty easily described here by John. Uh, Hal Lindsay, you may be familiar with him, he will say that, this, that these kinds of judgments, these kinds of results of judgment are describing nuclear warfare and these kinds of things. And that uh, I, it's possible, but it seems that people, if nuclear weapons were what was causing this, we as humans, well, if it happened today, we'd blame it on Vladimir Putin. Or we'd blame it on Biden and his reaction to Putin or whatever. We wouldn't be directly seeing this is a judgment from God, which is exactly what is being described here. So, well, I've, it's possible. I don't. I wouldn't uh, wholly. I wouldn't hold to that position personally. Uh, historicists, a true historicist, sees these as being. All these first four trumpet judgments are invasions of the barbarian tribes into Rome, culminating with its eventual fall in 476. Now, how you, you, know, you assign, well, the Goths are the first trumpet, the Visigoths are the second, and th- this kind of thing, it's, it seems uh, rather fanciful to me. And I have a big long quotes. Matthew Henry, he's a common, Matthew Henry is a historicist. His commentary is not uh, copyrighted anymore. It's in the public domain. So a lot of people go to Matthew Henry for uh, commentary online at any rate. And he's got some very strange ideas, particularly when it comes to to prophecy. He sees this uh, the same as the, well, okay, I'll just read it. <laughs> Matthew Henry on the trumpet judgments. There was a terrible storm, but whether this is to be understood of a storm of heresies, a mixture of monstrous errors falling on the church, for in, in that age, Arianism prevailed in the, this early church age, or a storm or tempest of war falling on the civil state, expositors are not agreed. He he puts it all in the early Roman Empire and heresies and it might be invasions. We're just not sure. Or it might be a future judgment from God during the tribulation where hail and fire and blood fall from the sky on the earth and things are burned up, like it says in the text. Uh, Preterists see these as being uh, things that happen to the nation of Israel in AD 70, and you read the preterist commentaries, and you just kind of like think lightning is going to come down and strike (laughs) close by for even reading these things that they say about Israel and uh, these judgments. Uh, The idealist position on the trumpet judgments, again, very, very fanciful. Uh, these, they say, uh, Hendrickson being one of those, he epitomizes the view of most in this camp. Uh, Robert Thomas says in his commentary, these trumpets of judgment indicate series of happenings. That is calamities that will occur again and again throughout this dispensation. They do not symbolize single and separate events but they refer to woes that may be seen any day of the year in any part of the globe. Therefore, the trumpets are synchronous with the seals. Uh, 
that's from that's actually from Steve Gregg's commentary, the four views on Revelation commentary. So again, the spiritualist sees these trumpet judgments just simply as describing, you know, this happens all the time, these kinds of things. I, personally, I've never seen blood fall from the sky. I've never seen uh, fire and hail coming down and burning up all of the green grass. This is all of the other views, historicists, preterists, spiritualists, or idealists, they do not believe in a literal interpretation of the text in any way, shape, or form. And that plays itself out, you can see very easily, in the complete and utter disagreement as to what they mean. When you study dispensationalists, there may be, you know, you get uh, Hal Lindsey who says this is nuclear warfare. Uh, most everyone else says this is hail, fire, and blood falling from the sky during the future tribulation. You have general agreement about a future, this is describing a future period with uh, these kinds of events taking place. But wait, there's more. The second trumpet judgment, verse 8 of Revelation 8, the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. Perfect example of a figure of speech there. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So what is it? Is something like a great mountain? Is it, is it volcanic activity? That's certainly a possibility. That it's some kind of great volcano that explodes, results in something, uh, the, the, you know, this uh, fiery object falling into the sea. Uh, that's not exactly what is being described, the, the great mountain. It's not the results of the great mountain, but it's the great mountain itself that's being described. So there is some uh, possibility for not understanding exactly what is being described. Perhaps it is a meteor. Meteors are big giant rocks that resemble mountains that are on fire when they go through our, through our atmosphere. Again, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, probably I would say no, probably not that. That, that would be a non-literal understanding of, of what's being described, taking a little bit too much liberty with the figure of speech, I would, I would conclude. Uh, doesn't mean you're a heretic if you believe it's nuclear weapons. It's just not quite exactly a good understanding of the figure of speech. So pro I, I personally would side with a meteor, some kind of flaming meteor that's going to fall into the sea and turn it into, or the result of which is going to be a third of the sea being turned to blood, a third of the sea life dying, and a third of the ships of the sea destroyed. Now we just kind of breeze over that, that last little fact there. I mean, if you've, if a third of the sea life dying, that's, that's incredibly dramatic. There are a lot of living creatures in the seas, probably more in the seas than there are on the earth. 
And so that's pretty dramatic. A third of the ships, now this is something that we can, uh, that we may not have a good grasp on. This is a very interesting website. If you want super detail, it's uh, marinetraffic.com is the name of the website. Tracks every single ship that is at sea and even some in the Great Lakes. When you zoom in, you can see all the ships on the Great Lakes, even those going down the, the Mississippi and Missouri River and all these kinds of things are being tracked. And down here in the corner, you, may, you probably can't see it, but down here in this area, they have the number of ships that are being currently being tracked that are at sea. Uh, it does include ones that are on the Great Lakes and on the rivers, but that pales in comparison to the number, obviously, that are on the oceans. That I was rather shocked when I came across this. This number down here that's saying how many ships? 299,000 ships currently uh, at sea in the world. And you can pay a couple hundred dollars a month if you want to, and you can get all kinds of detailed information on every one of these ships. I didn't do that, but you can if you want to. Uh, so at any rate, when this meteor hits the ocean, upwards of 100,000 ships are going to sink. That's rather dramatic. Uh, there's probably uh, some Navy ships can have up to 5,000 people on them, but obviously not many of these are Navy ships. They're very much cargo container ships and that kind of things. Those crews are significantly smaller, 20, 30 people on one of those ships to make them work. That is still a significant amount of people, millions of people dying when this takes place, in addition to a third of the sea life also dying, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed essentially turning the ocean to blood. Now, if this meteor, for example, the, the oceans are the three main bodies of water. There's probably more in the Pacific, but the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean uh, are pretty closely divided. So a meteor hits the Atlantic Ocean, takes out every ship, kills everything in the Atlantic Ocean. That's going to cause the Atlantic Ocean to turn to blood and have a, an obviously a significant effect upon the world. You think we have uh, supply chain problems today. They're going to have some sub serious supply chain issues when the second trumpet judgment falls upon the earth. And then in verse 10, we see the third trumpet judgment says the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And so again, here is a star that, that very likely could be uh, uh, what we would call a falling star. Again, some sort of, perhaps some sort of meteor 
this one with the effect of falling probably on the land. That's where we find fresh water. The Great Lakes, in fact, contain a significant portion of the world's fresh water supply. So we ought to watch out here. If you're living in Michigan, you're listening to this. Once the tribulation start, starts, uh, you better watch out because wormwood might be headed your way to cause the fresh water to be made bitter and people are going to die uh, as a result of this as the fresh waters are turned to blood. A judgment that happened, of course, in the Exodus uh, during the time of Moses, they experienced a judgment similar to this. This term wormwood, at least in the Greek anyway, wormwood, based on the Greek term, uh, is a, a an herb that was used to treat intestinal worms. So they could mix this uh, herb in with the water and cause treatment. Well, it obviously didn't taste very good. And so it got the idea of being bitter. Well, this bitterness actually kills people. And in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, God did a similar thing to the Israelites in the time of the Babylonian judgment that he turned the fresh water was made bitter. The Israelites in the desert came across bitter water was turned fresh when when God had the tree put into the water that was made fresh so that they wouldn't die. The people in the tribulation don't have the same benefit because they are not believing in God. So he isn't going to make the waters fresh for them. And many are going to die as a result in this third trumpet judgment. So the deaths are just piling up. As we have seen already, a quarter of the world's population was said to be killed in the sixth seal judgment. And now just untold millions are dying due to a lack of of fresh water, dying on the seas. Imagine being on the coastline when the second trumpet judgment happens, let alone at, at sea when that happens. It's going to be an incredibly horrendous period of time. And then the fourth trumpet judgment happens. Verse 12, then the the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Now, how exactly this plays out isn't perfectly clear from the text. There's a varying theories as to what it means. Does it mean that the sun loses a third of its intensity? Does it mean that it's dark for a third of the day, longer than normal, and at night a third of the stars aren't seen, or do they lose their intensity? Not entirely sure, but whichever it is, if the sun loses a third of its intensity, or it doesn't shine for as third as long, uh, things aren't going to grow as they normally would At, after the first trumpet judgment when all the green grass is burned up. This is, this is causing some real problems. You want to talk about food shortages. Again, something that's in the news uh, today, maybe alternative news sources talking of food shortages. This is going to cause uh, food shortages for sure. Whatever 
the, the outcome of it is. If it's the sunlight being cut off or the diminished or these kinds of things. This is clearly going to be a judgment that is coming from God. Several places talk about this event happening in the Old and New Testament. Isaiah 13, 10, speaking of the tribulation period, says, "For for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 13, 10. Joel 2 talks about this, these same kind of celestial events. Amos 5, 18. Jesus in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describes these signs in the skies. Uh, Luke 21 Verse 25, Jesus says there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. People are going to be made to be afraid. And it's not going to be manufactured from the government. Like a lot of people, uh, praise the Lord, the mask mandate for flying was uh, reversed this past week. uh, Crew members literally celebrating over that kind of thing. Unfortunately, it probably won't last very long. But nevertheless, I happened to be in California uh, during when this was lifted and uh, the overwhelming majority of Californians getting on airplanes still wearing masks. They are afraid. They have been made afraid by their government. Unfortunately, these people are not going to be made afraid by uh, Dr. Fauci or Joe Biden. They are going to be being made afraid by God himself. That is going to be real and actual fear. And it's only going to get worse, as we see, unfortunately, for these people. Notice verse 13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So not only does this fourth trumpet bring about these heavenly kinds of signs, but there's also a a warning that comes to the people of the earth. And the New American Standard Bible says that it is an eagle. You might notice a little note there next to that uh, term there, an eagle. And it'll probably say, I guess... Well, actually, the note says one eagle. If you have a new King James or a King James uh, version, it says that this is an angel. And we can go back and forth about the textual evidence and these kinds of things. Uh, Either way, (laughs) there is a warning that is coming from an angel or from an eagle, a bird of some sort who is flying in mid-heaven. Now, that's, that's the part that, is, that we should take away from this. What, whichever it is, this is happening in mid-heaven. This is something that people are seeing. That's what mid-heaven is, the sky. 
There is a being of some sort flying in the sky and warning people about this judgment that is to come. In other words, they, and, and either way, if it is a bird that is making this announcement, that will get your attention. Perhaps an angel would get your attention even more if you're seeing an angel flying through the sky warning you about judgment that is to come. Like, yeah, this is nothing. Wait until the next ones that are to come. There is no excuse for these people. They have to know that this is coming from God and it is only going to get worse. And again, we could say, you know, well, how dare God? How could he do this? But rather, or we could look at it from the other side of the coin and say, boy, isn't God gracious? He is literally announcing to them from heaven through a bird or through an angel that there's more judgment to come. This is coming from me and you still have time to get right with me. This is very similar to the days of Noah. People would ask the same kind of question. You know, well, who does God think he is destroying the world with the flood and killing all of those people? Well, He's actually very gracious. That's that's who he is. He is giving you time. He cannot stand the the sin and, and things that were going on in the time of Noah. And he's giving you time to change your mind about him, to trust in him, to repent, to trust and believe in him. Genesis 6.3 tells us that that period of time lasted 120 years. Genesis 6.3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. 120 years of uh, Noah being a preacher of righteousness, Peter describes him as in 2 Peter. Not only was he building the ark, he was showing his trust in God to the world is trust in God's word, even though it seemed outrageous. This is impossible. There's no way he could flood the world. How could that even come about? There's Noah building his ark every day and constructing it as a, as a sign and a warning at the very least. And I'm sure he was telling people also, I met with God. He told me he's going to destroy this world. You can come with us. You can come with me and my family onto this boat and you can be rescued. God being gracious in the period of silence, if you will, before the judgment, he's giving you a chance to trust in him. And that is very much like this age in which we are living, the church age. It is a time, just like it was for Noah, to preach righteousness, to tell people about sin and the judgment that is the result of sin, the consequences of sin, that God has a plan for us to be rescued from the consequences of sin. That's what we looked at last week with Peter And Paul, in the book of Acts, this is clearly a time of grace and a time to trust in God and his plan before these judgments even begin. 
Paul says in Romans 1.15, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This time period of the church age seems to be getting worse and worse and that people are going to be less and less likely to believe in the message, which makes us even more important now for people than perhaps they were, than we were even uh, 20 years ago. We can see the degradation in, in the church and the problems that the church has. Well, Paul talks about that as well. Second Timothy 4, verse 1 To this young pastor, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's what uh, Paul instructed Timothy to do. That's what the word instructs us to do, me to do as, as a teacher of the Bible uh, the church is to be about teaching people how to be made right with God and then how to walk with him, to be edified in his word, to be sanctified by his word, build up in his word, Ephesians chapter four, so that we can all do the work of service until this church age ends and these judgments begin. Clearly, this is a time to prepare for judgment. Paul in Romans 13 and verse 8, he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And what a, what a great passage to live by. Don't owe anybody anything, but love them. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Then he goes on to say, verse 11, do this, love one another knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. That's, that essentially is what the church age is, is all about. And if that's what it was about for Paul 2,000 years ago almost, wow, we are 
we are, he is on the doorstep. I think the door is, is coming open as we are speaking for the Lord to come for his church. So certainly we ought to be prepared uh, for his coming and the judgment for us that will subsequently happen at the judgment seat of Christ. So we too can heed this warning. Even though this warning is in the future tribulation period, we know that we are taken to meet the Lord before these things even begin to happen, let alone two years, three years, one year into the tribulation. Whenever this happens in the future, we have the warning ahead of time, knowing that he is coming. And this is uh, one of these charts that we that I've made uh, concerning the length of the dispensations, and this is pretty much to scale, and two of them stand out: the time of consciousness from uh, Noah leading up to the flood, sixteen hundred and sixty-five years when God, uh, after the uh, Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden until the flood came, 1,665 years for people to live according to their conscience and believe in God. The church age, 1,987 plus or minus a few years and probably more than that. I made this a few years ago, so I probably need to change that number. Uh, the number is continuing. This one is getting longer and longer and longer because God is a God of grace. Yes, he is a God of justice. He has to be. How could, he, how could God not be completely just? How could God not punish sin? Of course he has to uh, in order to be God. He can't allow sin to just continue forever. But he is also the God of grace. And of course he's the God of grace because his justice is satisfied perfectly through his love. He is the one who came to this world to die for our sins. He's paying the penalty, taking the justice and the judgment upon himself in his love for us. And he's given us in the world all of this time to trust in him before this little tiny tribulation period that's over here, this little seven years that is just uh, less than a blip on the whole time uh, line of dispensations. But he's given us all of this time to trust in his grace and in his love. So there we have justice from the creator. The justice is prepared and orderly. Our lives ought to be a time of preparation and order. The justice is delivered and we ought to heed the warning before it's too late. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we've been able to look into. We thank you for the book of Revelation and the incredible truths that we have here in this ancient text that are still so relevant for us today, I pray that we would look to you as our creator and as our savior, and that we would prepare ourselves to serve you in the time that we have left to come. I thank you for each and every person who, who is here, those who couldn't be here from our church, and those who are watching online. I just pray that you would uh, prepare our 
hearts and our minds to serve you in this week to come. Give us opportunities for that and help us to be faithful when the opportunities are presented and we will give you all of the praise and the glory. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.